0: Hey, Daniel. How's it going?
1: Hey, Evan. Ah, it's going. It's going all right. It's a Friday and it's a three-day weekend. We we're recording ahead of, is it Labor Day? Is that what's going, coming up? Yeah,
0: right before Labor Day. This is definitely coming out after Labor Day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always bad with
1: like holidays and dates and knowing the, the mid-year stuff, but I'm excited that uh, we have a little bit longer weekend, but it's supposed to be really hot. So whatever that means.
0: What about you? Mm-hmm. Well, we had like a total rainstorm come through yesterday. So I know when we were on our call this morning, everybody was like comparing weather on our team call. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Meanwhile, it was pouring here and now it's beautiful outside. So we'll see. I think for the weekend, it's not really relaxing. More, you know, housework, things of that nature. Projects for my mom. So
1: (laughs) yeah, I'm installing a window so I hear that, but uh (laughs) I know on today's episode, we're calling it Beat the Heat and What's in the News. Um, So, you know, weather-related, right?
0: Yeah, Uh, (laughs) weather-related. Let's jump in. I know uh, you were sharing an article from uh, the U.S. Department of Health with me um, about medical data breaches, and it seems like it's becoming a big topic again in the news.
1: Yeah, I mean, so just like between us, I... I don't know, I find like the whole cybersecurity space rather interesting. Um, I recently got a notice in the mail from um, a hospital I went to to get like a COVID test back in 2020. And it was like, your data has been like stolen or like unauthorized access. And I was like, oh, that's like not a fun notification to get in the mail. Like, what exactly does that mean? Um, And so for this episode this week, we were like just reading the news, no guests, but we're just uh, seeing what's out there. And I was I saw a bunch of headline articles about, hey, medical data breaches, like what's going on? And it just keeps happening. Um, so I went to like the U.S. Department of Health has a portal that lists every single data breach. I think it's like over 500 patients or patient records that get released. And like, obviously, we don't know if it's the same patients just over and over and over again, having their data breach, which would be really unfortunate. I'm I'm sorry if that's if that's you as a listener. But um yeah, we, there's like you wouldn't think that there's so many hacks or um like stolen data that's going on, but every day you can just look through this portal of every single incident. Most of it's network server, I think that's probably like someone like uh doing something bad, like meaningfully going after data. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's like a laptop stolen, which probably I'm, I'm thinking our laptop thief is not going after your patient data, but we still report it. Um but it's it's crazy. Anywhere from like 500, I think just a month ago, there was like an 11 million patient breach that was um, was stolen. And just uh, seeing lots of headlines out there about the rise in and, and hacking and um, just like unauthorized access to patient health information, thinking about like cybersecurity and what our hospitals are doing. Um, but then one other thing that... Uh, Kind of. I know we've been talking a lot about like remote work on the podcast too, and like what are we doing as we're moving remote to keep patient data safe. I think it's fair that for a lot of us in IT, we see, or even in operations, if you're working remotely, you're accessing patient data just to do your job, um, and you are, I guess, a risk. <laughs> um, and having everybody in the office versus people all over the place, I think it's increases that risk. We're only as good as the the weakest link um so that's what I've been reading about uh you have any uh personal anecdotes on that
0: yeah I mean I think I you know it's interesting what we determine as like a data breach as you're like going through like these statistics and looking at you know like network server email lab laptop somebody actually didn't it didn't show hack it was like actually stolen in the list which is is interesting and it's you know or you see unauthorized access of electronic medical record. And when you think of that, like what that means, it's internal. Like sometimes, you know, in the auditing process, they determine like, Hey, that wasn't an appropriate use of the record and, and things of that nature. So it's interesting how widespread this is, but it even goes down to like city level and, Big corporation like I saw Rite Aid on here, Humana. So it's not even just, you know, healthcare providers that uh, I mean, I think the healthcare provider sector is where we see it the most in the news, right? Is like this major health system had a data breach or a data compromise. But really, when you're looking at it, it could be our our clinical record could be at any level it looks like from here, from, you know, a sniff to oh, an ambulance company's on the list. I mean, that type of deal. So, you know, I think moving employees home, one thing that we, I I know I experienced in getting my, my team when I was back in operations home was no paper. But then what does that mean? Like, we're all used to having shorthand notes. I mean, I even have a notepad next to my desk and I have to make sure like, okay, if I need to write something down it's nothing patient related when i'm working with a client or working for a client um but you know you have to figure out those short those short tricks and things of that nature um i remember my team we told them no paper you could have a notepad for you know like your to-do list for the day (laughs) but we started leveraging like Microsoft to do, we started leveraging using sticky notes instead of having a post-it note, teaching them how to use sticky notes or even one note, things of that nature that they could like copy the information down and then be able to copy and paste or type it. But it is hard because I think everybody has a different, you know, operational work style. I tend to be able to take minutes while we're in a meeting and be able to do that. Some people, and be able to type some people need to write it and then for them to understand it they have to transpose it back I know our dear old Gretchen used to have like tons of notebooks and now she's trying to type on it and she shared this in a meeting and I was like oh wow that's that's a huge you know physical change and then not even being able to print paper like I'm not a paper person so I'm used to you know just print to pdf and then save it in a secure folder on the on the server but um Others, like I had somebody who were like, okay, well, you're going home. And she's like, but I print my, ma- I print these books. And I'm like, well, these books aren't going to exist at your house. You can't just print like what you need to be able to go and like cross reference. You're going to have to learn to screenshot it, take a picture, delete your screenshots, do that, empty your recycle bin on your, on your computer as well. I don't think any of us do that. And just let it type out by itself. So I think, Those are all things that from a data breach, you know, it's interesting. And then you're still hearing, you know, organizations trying to figure out how to allow people to work remotely anywhere, but yet contain where those IP addresses are accessing. I can remember, it's been years, but... Back when I was at a major health system on the West Coast, I went to Australia, and I get this text saying, we need you to join this call, and it's only on Zoom. And you can join a Zoom call anywhere, but IT had it where the Zoom accounts only could go through certain IPs, so they had to be US-based IPs. Well, I didn't know, so (laughs) I'm like, I can't join the meeting. I'm real sorry. What do you mean you can't join the meeting? i'm not in the country like i just can't do it you know or last week i got a question while i was in mexico i same thing i was like um well i can't access anything i don't want to access anything i mean i could from my phone because i could you know remote onto a computer and all of that but then it's like you have to get an external vpn that makes it look like you're in a country in your designated country and i think that's how cyber you know cyber attacks are happening as you're seeing like these other countries leveraging it or whoever wants to do it to get there it's just, it's it's kind of scary with how much is out there that could be tapped into but not at the same time yeah like I wouldn't I don't lose sleep over it but at the same time I'm like well if you really want to know what medically is wrong with me feel free please just don't access my social security number <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's um the other thing I was thinking about just related to like learning, like learning like all that paper stuff. Like if somebody's like piece of paper gets stolen, it has a few patient accounts written on it. Like that doesn't get reported here. Like this is like the big stuff. Um, And I was thinking about it, like, I, when I went to school, I didn't remember there being an option to be like, I'm gonna go get a se- cybersecurity degree that like focuses on like, I, I, maybe it exists nowadays. Um. I'm a, I'm a little out of college, but not too far out of college. But I don't remember that like being a degree that people like specialized in. And I know that there's um, like some cybersecurity companies out there like that will protect your data and, and whatnot. But there was like a big one, I think, Move it was like a recent one where like the cybersecurity company got hacked and like everybody's data that was there got stolen. And it's like, um, yeah, to your point, it's like, yeah, like some of this stuff. Um, you don't lose sleep over it, but when it happens, it it does feel a little bit scary. It doesn't feel like there's like a lot of options for you. Um, you're hoping for the best. I one like small anecdote to your point about like unauthorized um access. I remember I was working at a hospital and uh I think it was Beyonce that was having a baby and everybody wanted to know the baby's name before it got like released to media. So yeah, there was like hundreds of nurses or other like clinicians like accessing the patient record and uh yeah just like big no-no um and that sort of stuff like did they report it i don't know um but yeah wild
0: yeah it it, i mean and you think about that right like when like celebrities i mean think of whether we're wherever they are in the nation it's it's crazy i can remember working back at um providence back way back when when we were going live at one of the um santa monica hospital and it's a they have a big beautiful birthing suite and a ton of celebrities and come and and birth there and they lock down you know they pay for a floor they pay for that privacy there's private entrances where you know paparazzi can't see the car coming in, in and out underneath the underground parking i mean it's crazy like what health systems are doing to protect patients and then let alone public image patients across and then internally we still have this like need to know so we're going to potentially jeopardize our jobs I mean I just it's not me but like I couldn't imagine like you know being that and then like oh I was just curious well curiosity does kill the cat in this case like lots of people could lose their jobs I was just I just reran the numbers out there on the U.S. Department of Health as of this morning and there's nine hundred and thirty different investigations going on right now, like that's crazy to in i i you know you hear of like what a few a year, but like there's nine hundred and thirty actively going right now that 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 to me is insane,
1: yeah,' to your point. I mean, it could be a stolen laptop, it could be your ambulance company that probably just has like your name and stuff um I think I was looking through like a lot of this is insurance which I don't know, feels like, I don't know what medical information they have, maybe like what appointments I went to so they can know, like, <laughs> have I gotten my annual checkup this year? Um, I haven't, but I should. Um, but just, I don't know. It, I think the headline number is like 385 million patients have had their patient records like exposed or looked at since 2010 when, I mean, I know that Electronic medical records have been around a little bit longer than that, but that's like almost everyone, like yeah. 385 million is like almost everyone in this country. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I see some headlines, like some newspa- newspaper articles about it, but nobody really talks about it at home. Um, I don't know what like what hospitals are doing. I know that, that there are like new servers or like they are building out their cybersecurity teams internally or trying to keep their, their data like on site. With like uh with hardware versus like listed in the cloud somewhere, or like a Citrix or like a Dell solution or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It seems like it's always going to be an issue with us now.
0: Not that you have to share your personal information, but did your letter even go into like what aspects that were at risk or were breached? Like that would be my question, right? Like is like what part? So I at least know that.
1: Yeah, they they mentioned like some very vague information like name address i think they mentioned that like social security or like credit card information could have could have been at risk um i mean i think it's like encrypted but like they don't like necessarily like spell that out what they do offer is like one year free of um like identity protection like through like the basic software i think like the government like helps like support that when there's a data breach they'll be like here, hospital, here's this service that you can give to these people that, for your identity identity death protection. Um, so I did that. Like if somebody tries to access my social security number or like I I bought a car recently, I had to like put all that information in and like Volkswagen calls me up being like, hey, somebody's like, we got this lock that we can't <laughs> put through your your auto loan because you have like a lock on your account. And like that, that feels nice. At least it's a little bit better. because um, yeah. I saw it, <laughs> I saw it happen real time. Uh, but yeah, it does feel a little bit, uh, nerve wracking to know, like somebody could be like getting a credit card in my name and racking up a ton of credit card debt like, under my,
0: my name, because I went to a hospital somewhere. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I have like that life block. Um, and I got it actually from a cybersecurity breach. It was like, here's your one year, like free, you know, we're sorry that your information got taken. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, I might as well just keep it. Like <laughs> at least I'll know if something happens, um, which, you know, it, it's interesting. It's interesting being on the receiving end. I've also been on the other end where, like, I'm having to help do the investigation and look to into with, you know, corporate compliance. And I ask, like, why did this person access this record? How did they access this record? Um, did they have a need or intent? Oh, you know what? It doesn't matter if they accessed it or not. It's like public domain, anyways. So therefore, it's not a site. You know those elements of what they review and we're not cyber. You know it's the it's that level of like you have all these specialists in it, but yet they're still generalists because it doesn't always occur enough that somebody's constantly looking. But it is rest assuring to know though, like health systems at least, like our our business partners, they have. People who are dedicated and running reports and analytics and figuring out why they're accessing, you know, should they have been in this or not? Um, our, my own client asked me like, "Hey, why were you in this portion of the thing? What were you pulling out?" And I was like, "What you asked me to pull out? Like, here's the report request." And they were like, "Oh yeah, never mind. <laughs> like, I I just needed this data element. Uh, what you were asking me to pull you the data. So yeah, it's it, it is interesting just to see across the board." Well, as Daniel shared in this episode, it's just the two of us. So hopefully you guys don't get bored listening to us today (laughs) (laughs) Um, in that regards. But let's take a quick break, Daniel, um, unless you have another note on cybersecurity. And we'll be right back then.
1: Are you ready to unlock the full potential of your medical coding team? Look no further than Adeo Technologies, the leading provider of medical coding productivity solutions with Adeo's Gemini Solution Suite. Medical coders are empowered and complemented with cutting edge tools and technologies. The Gemini Coder platform, Gemini AutoCode and Gemini Coding Assist solutions work seamlessly together, creating efficiency and improving accuracy in medical coding. Say goodbye to tedious manual processes, cheat sheets, and memorization and embrace the power of workflow improvements, artificial intelligence, and predictive coding. At Adeo, we believe in the collaboration between medical coders and artificial intelligence to create coding capacity that makes human coders more valuable to their healthcare organizations. Visit our website at www.adeo-tech.com. It's adeo-tech.com to learn why we love coders and how Adeo Technologies is transforming medical coding productivity one claim at a time.
0: And we're back. All right. So...
1: It's September, and if you're not thinking about it already, you're probably thinking about it in the next few weeks of what does CMS have in store for me this year? Like, what's coming up on January 1st that I need to <laughs> get in place? Um, I think some people probably think about it a little bit earlier than September. I know when I used to work at a hospital, it was around this time when I start to get those frantic emails from operations being like, "Have you heard about this?" I'm like, "Yeah." Like sometimes yes, sometimes no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, one hot topic that I see some headlines about and something that I think people should be talking about more uh, is price transparency. And just like the things that are going on about price transparency, one of the things that interests me the most is when CMS rolls out some new regulation, like price transparency, and I'm sure there's some more coming out this year. Do we ever go back and look to say, was this effective or... Um, like what are the benefits of it and are we updating this or do are we are we doing as much as we can with what's been proposed um evan you're probably more in the know on price transparency than me i've like set it up i know like the ins and outs of like how do i get these estimates in place and how do i get my uh my contracted like prices out there for patients to look at but is that something that you hear about just like in an operational world, like people talk about price transparency or is this one of those things like we set up and we forgot about it?
0: Yeah, I think pricing transparency is a hot topic and it's going to continue to be. Um, we, uh, my client that I'm working with right now, we've been talking about it for the last three months, especially with the proposed rule coming out from CMS. And it's interesting. And you you sent me over that article from Fortune Well, I think it is, um, and we're like, Nine out of ten Americans support hospital pricing transparency rule, but it's not working. Let Let's face reality. What is pricing transparency? Right, like we as consumers, and if I don't even think about it as like a somebody in the industry, but as a consumer, I don't even understand it ninety percent of the time. Um, and how, like, if I go to the dentist office, that means absolutely nothing to me. Like, I benefit because I understand revenue cycle and, and revenue integrity and charge master and how we structure and how we come up with our pricing and you know, doing our cost reports and what is our, you know, cost to, cost to price ratios and things, but if you go and become a consumer just in another portion it's not as e- easy i mean i can remember back at legacy um several years ago the director the, my my peers and i we did revenue cycle one on one and like how did you get reimbursed and like the nuance and the complexity of it and even to explain it to somebody new in a entry level coming in i used it was like going to starbucks versus going to you know Tully's or going to, you know, Dutch Brothers or whatever your local coffee shop is, and being able to say, okay, well, if I go to Starbucks, and I want a skinny vanilla latte at Starbucks, it's $5.50. But if I go over to Seattle's Best, it's going to be $7.50. And being able to just kind of explain, you know, everybody, Seattle's Best is paying their employees more, they're offering more benefits, they might be doing this, they might be doing that. And that's driving up the cost component of it. But then once we throw insurance on top of that and say, OK, but if you're going to pay with your American Express card, you automatically, instead of getting this cash back, which is the new world of credit cards, right? Instead of that, you're going to get a 5% discount. And if you pay with your Visa MasterCard for this specific store X, you're going to get thirty. Per, uh, our card, you're going to get it at a 30% reduction rate, That that i think is what adds this level of pricing transparency that like we forget when we put in these legislations that means nothing to a patient that means nothing to a consumer they don't like they understand they pay for their insurance and they expect to have to pay a certain portion or a certain premium but what that portion and premium is we're not there yet and until In my opinion, CMS pauses and says, we're going to have these regulations for providers and for health systems, but we're going to have equal regulations on the insurance who one knows what their contracted rates are. Doesn't matter if the hospital charges $1,000 or not for item X, they know what their patient is responsible for. And what they're for that they have that contracted loaded. They know, regardless what they're pricing, and unless it's a percent of charge basis for a total need, this is what our patient's going to be responsible for, maximum out of pocket, everything. Really, the organization who should be providing the pricing transparency is the patient's health system because they know where they're at with their premium benefits how much they paid for their deductible and all of that. The current first version of what CMS was going for was like, "Hey, let's post our charge masters. Let's post this." That means nothing to a patient. Like you're asking us to post CPT codes, our EAP numbers out of Epic if you're on Epic or whatever your chargeable number is, whatever description we have and not and there's no standard regulation that says everybody must use the AMA a short description or medium description everybody can customize that and then when you look at like a room and bed rate nobody knows if it's all inclusive that includes all the supplies there some organizations do that some organizations charge individual supplies so it's it's kind of like here's this total chaos and Yes, it has a good intent and we want to inform and allow people to choose where they want to go. But let's face reality. Our insurance carriers also drive who's in and out of network. So even though it might be cheaper for me to go to health system A because they're in network, but they don't have the highest quality scores and the highest quality metrics. And my doctor, my specialist that I was referred to as a part of, has their surgical Approval at B, and now I have to get approved as out of network, and maybe get them to do a single case agreement. Like, I'm not really shopping for my services because my my insurance is telling me where and where I can't go anyway. So, what does it really matter what the transparency is other than annually when I go do an enrollment? And you know, Hank, if you're listening, don't take this personal. But when you only have one health plan to choose from. (laughs) you go with that health plan, right? Like that, that's what it is. It's not like we're some, some corporations, you have two or three different options to go through their broker, but a lot of, uh, a lot of systems and organizations still it's one. And then if you're in the healthcare industry, I'm sure Daniel, you know, when you were at a hospital, you had one to pick from, right? Like most likely, and it's whoever they're, whoever they're self-sponsoring it through. So, I mean, I worked for, Providence back in the day and you got Providence health plan. I mean, it they have their own health health insurance, so that's what you got. So it it kind of limits where you can go and and what you can do. So while the intent is great to provide education to the consumer, it's a lot of extra work for the health systems that really the information is already at the fingertips, in my opinion, at the health plan, they know what it's going to be. They know what regardless the price is, what they're going to end up paying. So, um, and they're better off to equip, to educate their patient or their member and our patient, right. To be able to say, Hey, yeah, you can have a total knee, but you're going to have to have this done first. And these are the requirements and everything versus us having to go and tell them and say, Hey, you know what, for you to have this procedure, you have to go get these tests done. And we have to first do physical therapy. And we have to do all of these things first, because your insurance says so, like, you're putting that back on health on the provider who's trying to guide care, but really, the health plans already made up those rules. So they should be the ones having to do it, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a heck ton of work to get all that stuff set up for a hospital. And I just don't even know what patients are using it. To your point, it's like, the like, first of all, as a patient, if I want to go like look at this information, I have to go to every single individual hospital or like clinic in my area to go find this information. It isn't one spot, and I'm also kind of surprised there hasn't been like a startup out there that's like <laughs> sort of aggregating this data like in one place. Um, but then also like the tools and the experience is different in every hospital. Like if I want to go find it, some hospital might have a little bit nicer tool than another, but it's not it's not the same. To your point, the descriptions of things might be different so unless i'm like medically versed as far as like jargon um i might have a hard time figuring out what i need or like what it's going to look like um yeah yeah, it's just
0: it's when you're you're still dependent on your provider right like you have to be socially aware enough to go and say hey dr smith for this proceed these procedures what are those cpt codes so now i can go out and shop where i want to have that done and oh can you tell me where you're where you have credentialing and privileges that because I want you to do the service, but yeah, I want to go figure out if I want to have it done at the locations that you're approved to do the service at. Like it, it just doesn't make sense. Like the intent is great. The sensibility of how it gets rolled out and applied in, in the actuality people aren't shopping around. Like once you get a specialist referral, you're excited if you can get in in two weeks, most of the time because of the lack of providers out there. I mean, my own partner, I mean, he's waiting 30 days to see his established care provider dermatologist for an emergency item. Like we ended up in urgent care versus going to his in-network where we knew how much it was going to cost us and everything. And now we're waiting to see like, okay, how much was that emergency room visit actually going to cost us now Because we couldn't, even though we knew the cost in the shopping portion, because we're health we're savvy enough to leverage the tools, didn't matter. We ended up having to go to the emergency room because you can't be seen. So yeah,
1: you know, there needs to be like a a tool out there. I think the CMS probably wanted to be something like a kayak or something where you're like, I'm going to go take a trip somewhere and I'm going to do it on these days with this many guests. I'm going to need a hotel and a rental car and Uh, Maybe I'm going to add on some excursions and I can see like, okay, if I go with American airlines versus United and I say like a Hyatt versus a a Hilton or like, I think that was the intent behind it is that the patients could have a place to look at all that stuff. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's way too cumbersome right now. Um, I think it would be really cool if there's some like nifty startup person out there that could do a bunch of queries to all these different health systems and their tools and, Insurance carriers to figure out like okay, if you live here and you need to get this service, <clears throat> and these are your various like health plans that you have options to through your um through your company or work and like like here's what you would be paying each year if you were to choose like anthem versus like blue like whatever it is um it is so hard to choose insurance, just like you're just kind of guesstimating, and there's not a a, a nifty tool out there that can like tell you like okay I'm gonna go be seen for these things. And I um, know uh, you're not, you don't always know what care you're gonna need during the year, but there, I mean, there's some gonna be unexpected, but there is some expected stuff too. Um, and there's, sh- there should be a way to aggregate all that. And you can see, okay, I'm in it. And if I do this, I'm in network here, I can do these services. It's gonna cost me this. Yeah. Um. And that doesn't
0: exist. Yeah. And I think with this year's proposed rule changes, it's adding more work for the health systems to publish more information, additional reporting, additional transparency, which is great. And we're all open to doing that. However, it's being used by insurance companies. It's not being used by the consumer of the actual healthcare products. That's at least what we're seeing. And every year around January, February, we get tons of hits on our websites is what everybody's been reporting that I've talked to. And then it just trickles off the rest of the year. And you know, anytime you do a major pricing change, you have to re-upload everything and republish it, and 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 that takes hours, and that takes that takes a lot of time. And then the other question is is are you running it based off of pricing, or your your you know um, price off of what it actually is right now? Are you running off of a historical, and are you having to take a hybrid and say, okay, well for these procedural items, we're taking an average historical approach of what sub procedures were in that primary DRG, like, or not that make up that DRG or make up that procedure, you know, 90% of total knees run X number of hours of surgery, X, you know, percentage of anesthesia. They usually end up having this many implants well, what if the implant cost went up or we're trialing a new, uh, we've switched implants, right? So now you have to go and say, well, what's that direct? And some of it is a direct cost from a manufacturer that you don't actually know until after you get the device. So you're giving them a rough estimate and you know, it's, it's same thing with like an ABN for, for Medicare. Like if you're within 20% or a hundred dollars over, whichever is the greater value, you have to eat the remainder of that cost. Well, if it's an, a reference lab and it's not covered by Medicare, oops, like I don't know what my reference lab necessarily is always going to charge. What if they in re- increase their rates and my contract with them is a direct pass-through. It's not at a set fee. Like I'm now having to go out to my physicians that are net contracted, my anesthesiologists, my laboratories, getting their pricing and then providing that as well. Like that's the next evolution of what's being required on these hospitals and that all fluctuates and changes versus saying, hey, you know what? Which they have done a really good job in my mind of several states have even went beyond CMS and are enforcing it even more so to say, hey, if you're an in-network, if you're a provider performing services at an in-network location, that you have to treat it as in-network and the health plan has to treat it as in-network. I think that's amazing for our consumers to say, you know what, my anesthesiologist is out of network, but my health system is in network that I had the services at. So therefore it's in network and I don't have to worry about having this huge out of pocket additional expense. I think that's great. But I do think that we run these risks still of what's the intent behind it and what is it really the consumers trying to get at and and who should provide that. And I love your analogy of like having one database, like Make it required that everybody has to feed that in, say, confidentially say who is their network people and what are those network rates and feed that in or in that regards. Or maybe it's really the health plans having to say, here's our in-network providers and here's what our contracts and here's what our rates are because they have all of that at their fingertips I just think in my mind, I would have flip-flopped it and put it on to the health plan expectation versus the provider expectation because the providers constantly are fluctuating and changing. And we can't always inform the consumer whether they're in or out of network. Sometimes it's a difference in a day um, when that contract's coming up for negotiation or not. So,
1: do you know, if like, I know like hospitals, there has to be, there was that like, this is like a long time ago, but hospitals have to be able to share information. Like if you request patient health information, like there needs to be a way to share it. Do you know if health plans have that same requirement that if somebody was to like request information that
0: you could get that? You know, I don't actually know that. That's a good, that would be a good uh, blog for somebody to write. Um, I can volunteer myself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know on that one. That's a good requirement. I, you know, I even think sharing of medical records, what are those requirements around what has to be shared? Um, One of the cool things, and I know this is kind of off topic and it wasn't part of what we were originally planning. There's this cool thing out there that is being developed called Smart Cards. And it's basically like a QR code that has your, in, your insurance card on it so that you don't have to bring a card anymore. And like, it would be used by the insurance company. It would be used by um, your pharma, your commercial pharmacists, your hospitals, your provider office and everything. And it contains all of your information. I, I'm learning more about it because um, one of my clients is part of the pilot program of it. But I just think like, even that would be benefit. like having those types of leverage technology that we have today to do that on um, like how do we share information and then what are those requirements and aspects around it um i don't know it's interesting cuz i've been on the receiving end of saying but that record portions available to you you know like i as our listeners think about it you know claim attachments um you're having to transmit that between plans, Why is it that a plan can't transmit that for you like if you were if you, they're the primary and you know Medicare's primary you're the secondary payer, and a commercial payer is their secondary you know Medicare sends the claim is Medicare sending the claim attachment like that would be cool share that record that you already have attached. I mean, that's the leverage I think that we have to get at is like, where do we, where does CMS come in and the insurance commissioner come in and say, Hey, insurance companies, you're now responsible for sharing these records. Also, when you receive a claim, anything, any clinical documentation associated with it, when you're passing it claim to the second, if you're not the primary, you're responsible for sending it to the secondary with the supporting documentation versus saying to a health system that we're all concerned our costs keep going up. Well, administrative burden from the health plans is what's driving up that cost, at least on the revenue cycle side of how much clinical records are being requested. How many denials are we having to appeal and overturn and, and go those routes? So I think it really you know, we gotta see some flip-flop at some point of it just not being an ownership hundred percent on payer on the plans, um not doing anything and it just being the providers who have to manage it. But I don't know on your question. I mean, it that would be interesting to see. I do think in the automotive world, I mean, I know from a TPL perspective, they have they're required to share records because they get subpoenaed right out of the gate between each other so that might be the difference
1: yeah you know it just I, somehow we need to get in front of congress and be like cms or like put some some rules in place to have health plans be sharing this information because they're i mean maybe it's the that all those companies the big the big uh insurance carriers are all uh uh, lobbying with Congress that they don't have to share all that information or they don't have to do all that. I don't know, um, but the onus on the hospitals. I'm sure there's there's some politics involved somewhere in that, but uh, it would be nice if uh, there was some coordinated effort to, uh, yeah, to your point, have the the health plans and insurance be a little bit more forthright on information and forthright on sharing information too.
0: Yeah, what I would also love to see is at some point, somebody go to Congress and be like, hey, uh, can we change the calendar year of when your rule, proposed rules are trying to go in place? Your role is they're literally rolling out these changes during the major holidays. And Congress gets shut down for the major holidays, but everybody else is expected to work around the clock. I mean, our poor IT teams are working until 11.59 p.m., on new year's eve to make sure everything migrates for for the systems or we're having to hold all of our systems for three to four days to allow for things to go back and then we're having to re-trigger and reprocess stuff i mean the fact that we wait for a calendar year end to make updates i get it but at some point we we probably need to figure out as a nation, how do we migrate our timelines differently to allow for us not to be doing this year-end push, physical year-end push that is taxing and keeps people away from their families during major holidays. It it sucks. So you've been there. I've been there. Many of our listeners have been there and we got to find a new way. Well, speaking of CMS and their rules, I was, uh, I found something interesting um, that the AHA is calling for an easier way to transition from bundle payments to at-risk models. And um, I read this, uh, it's from Tech TechTarget. Um, they have a different series for our listeners. Um, if you go out and look, um, they have one called Revenue Cycle Intelligence, and they have one called Healthcare IT Intelligence, I think, and several... Other um we've talked about it in other podcasts about like where do we get our learnings and facts. Um, there's an EHR intelligence, healthcare IT security. Um, those are just some of them. And um they published this article not that long ago, actually, um, around how A- the um AHA is calling for an easier ramp up on bundling payments and um episode-based payment um payments and really around like how, you know, we're moving from a non-at-risk agreement to more of an at-risk world. Um, And part of that is, you know, through um, better care collaboration and making sure we have metrics and all the right things of like what, what, how you should be paid. Like if you're performing stellar, both in, you know, Clinical outcomes and infectious disease and all of that, and those are at risk. And your patients are not are decreasing using it because you're doing pre- more preventative care in your professional side versus your hospital side of the service and transitioning that care model over. You know, in that at risk agreement, that's great and or along with population health. But really, you know, Daniel, I'd love to get your thoughts on like how's it or if you've even heard in in there like. How's IT helping look at these things or figure out some of that, especially like, you know, as we, we know many EMR systems are trying to build out their own contract managers and things of that nature, but are they building in that at-risk component or is it just strictly still the, here's the fee for service or the payment rates? And I don't dive into the contract world unless they absolutely make me. So (laughs) I would love to hear if you know of anything or get some of your thoughts. Yeah. It's, it's funny you ask, uh, cause I was going to
1: pause you to be like, Hey, can I get some more context on this? Cause, um, in my IT world, I'm, I'm, I do contracts. I've done contracts for a few organizations now. I've never, I mean, I know like this comes up in like some conversations, maybe like, I just have like the contract expert, like the actual person who's like the expert on the contract, like figure it out. Um, but from like a, an IT perspective, I haven't really dealt with this. This isn't something that comes up uh, at least domestically. I've dealt with it internationally, like when dealing with, um, an international client that I worked with, but um, maybe for our listeners though, uh, talk a little bit more about like what a bundled payment is and why that's important. Because I imagine that some of our listeners might not know.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it depends on the context, but typically a bundling payment, you know, a bundle payment model would be um, more of a global type of payment where if you have a procedure done, every b- one person's getting the full payment. So we see a lot of this in the physician side of the world where both the technical and the, uh, the fee for the technical component of it, plus the physician component is being paid as one bundle, um, amount versus the hospital getting a part and then the physician getting a part, we're seeing a single payment come and then, in in that be transposed. Um, they're called um bundle payment care improvements is or BPCIs is what they're calling them. Um and it's just in that regards, like they're really trying to move to more of like surgical episodes are being part of this. Um medical and surgical episodes are typically part of it by participating physician groups. And I think physicians to some extent can opt in and opt out if you're part of a system or non system. I I I got to beef up my knowledge around it a little bit more, but typically a bundling payment is just that like, instead of each area getting their own component, it comes as one payment and then it's split uh, based off of the percentage of work or, or the relative work value in the background. So um, we see a lot of major health systems that are one kind of, I'm going to call it a one revenue cycle doing bundling versus that. But even with that model, you you still see in the industry some of that happening while they're developing these at-risk models where like, how much is the health system going to take at risk? Or is the health system now going to manage patient lives on behalf of the insurance company? So we see a lot of that of like, hey, for this population, insurance company X is going to transfer those funds over to health system Y. And we're hoping that all of those patients are going to just come use your health system. You're going to though also be responsible internally. Now, instead of the claim going to the insurance company, that health system has to have a division within themselves to process those claims internally. That includes authorizing that the services, processing the services. And that becomes kind of the first phase is what I've seen of at-risk models of like, hey, you you have a stake in it because you're managing these lives and you're managing these claims and you're just getting the premium payment back from the health plan. But that still runs risk too, because once the contract's up, all of those lives then get reassigned if you don't renew. And, and then you have the continuity care issue. And then I don't know how that affects people's payments for the rest of the year or not. That this is where we need a contract manager, actually, on the cost.
1: <laughs> we haven't had contracts. Maybe I, I, I joke. I was joking with Gretchen. Like, my my contract's um, certification ethic recently expired. I need to get it renewed. But I'm also like, I, I really don't enjoy (laughs) like digging into the weeds of contracts. Like I don't necessarily want to market myself as like someone who knows contracts. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But maybe we do need to bring someone who's like contract expert on the, on the podcast to tell us why we should care about them and why I need to go get my certification so that I can (laughs) do that type of work again.
2: There's always that one person
1: that there's always that one person at the hospital who like knows it and they can never leave because uh, they, they have all the knowledge and, um, yeah. Maybe that's a broken system too.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm always like, Hey, I want to tell you what to put in the contract operationally because it's giving my team's heartburn, but I don't know how you calculate your, how we're going to get paid. That's <laughs> you. So, I think modeling too. That's one thing that, it, it, you know, I think that's one area that um, a lot of the EMR systems that are doing contract managers need to continue to robustly build. Like you still see a ton of health systems, grabbing contract, leveraging outside modeling products while they're building their contracts within the EMR now so that they can net down at time of billing and have all of that real time you're still seeing them have to purchase these bolt-on systems to do their modeling for the at-risk or bundling payments to determine like, okay, well, what's the percent we need to go back to the health plan to ask for additional funds or, or be able to give more here and reduce our rate here because it, it'll help offset, but we'll still get a net gain. So yeah. Okay, maybe I mean, we should a add contracts to our list. <laughs> I don't have any contracts friends. We'll pass around. Uh I think I have a few. <laughs> we'll just have to see if any of them are willing to talk about it. But that's a net, I mean, that's another hot topic right now, is really around, you know, and, and a lot of the bundling portion is also around that pricing transparency tying trying to tie it back in there for you guys as listeners is as those bundling payment models, what does that mean for a patient? Because they don't see how we get paid. But yet we have to explain how they're going to get billed. And if we're bundling these services together, are they going to get one bill? Are they to expect multiple bills? Are they expect to receive multiple rates? How do they understand that? And and even when you're shopping, right, as an as a consumer, like, is this a bundled at why is why is it at a hospital or health system A? I'm only going to pay this and it's one. And at hospital B, I'm going to get these three bills, but you know what? Those three bills do are they lesser than this one? Like that's the portion like consumers don't know. And I can't even explain it. Like, I would have to go through and ask those questions as I, I'm looking. So yeah. All right, Should we take another quick break and come back? Yeah, let's do it. Okay.
1: Claim Capital is a team of ex epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue.
2: There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes through it all one organization is there to educate connect inform and pave the way toward the future of patient access the national association of healthcare access management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance
0: all right we're back daniel from this break
1: what's next up
0: we we don't have to do a wrap up today, so we have a little bit more
1: time, and we'll surprise our listeners with an abrupt end. Uh, but uh, one thing that I feel like I've heard about this like three years now. I know we even have alluded to it on the podcast before, but it's just like ongoing labor shortages and ongoing cost increase for hospitals. So, like this is like something that a lot of hospitals, I know a lot of our like we hear about this a lot in our our to day work. It's just like there's there's a shortage of people. Um, or things have gotten more expensive. I don't know if you want to chalk it up to inflation, or I don't know, something else is going on. Um, Things are more expensive today. And something that, I I don't know, I'd be curious for your thoughts. I know like in our industry, specifically like IT, I don't feel like there's like a shortage of people, like there's almost (laughs) maybe too many people. Maybe you see that uh, differently. But I know like on the clinician end, and just like managing care to your point earlier about like i had to wait 30 days to go see a provider or my specialist like that's crazy um and i guess what are you seeing on your end just about that and is that something that you're having to have conversations about
0: yeah i mean i think you know i guess i'm a little blessed that i even in my role at wilshire i have the team that does the majority of the interim leadership work or, or fills in, it does interim uh, support roles. So I get to help fill those those shortages and gaps and you know do those placements. At the same time, I think across the industry, we are seeing, especially in like a revenue cycle world, a huge shortage. Um, and people not wanting to necessarily have to come into the office so or and they can go work in industries that are allow for that work from home environment you know we had an episode uh, the episode right before this one um with uh, Kelly Smith and Amanda de los Reyes, uh, two Vps out there in the industry really talked about how you know to recruit they're having to stay up in these work from home environments but having to become unique in how they do training and things of that nature. I think from a revenue cycle perspective, We do still see a shortage. We do see um, it's hard to find qualified staff. Um, You know, if you don't have a robust training program or trainer or like an education team in your in your revenue cycle um, shop, you you do kind of struggle in like, hey, how do I take somebody brand new green and build them up so that I can keep this work from home environment, but also build this camaraderie amongst teams and things of that nature um, I think part of the industry also is experiencing it just from shift work or shift fatigue um I think that's why in nursing you see them work you know three twelves or three on four off, depending on what the cycle rotation are um I think we have to start to look at some of those models and revenue cycle too is you know probably not have four eights, tens, twelve hour shifts, but like you know two options you can do this or this for for balancing of roles um but I do see that we have an industry kind of an industry like lag. I I do think there's a ton of great IT resources out there, but if you're on the operational side, there's not enough of them. Like organizations don't have enough people to process all the tickets, to help with all the automation, help with all of these things. So, you know, as we look as an industry and we keep, we've had multiple episodes around AI and machine learning and, and implementing that to offset one cost of labor, but it's really not the cost of labor people are trying to tackle. It's the lack of having resources um, and being able to automate it. So the resources you do have are doing that meaningful, harder to do work, which is more time intensive. And you actually get some value out of it because you, you accomplish something at the end of it versus doing menial tasks. But we need to kind of target and shift that around so that we have these great experts to be able to do that. And I think in the clinical world too, you're starting to see that um, there, the, what is it? Chat? Uh, I wrote it down after. Chat GPT. Yeah, yeah. Chat GPT. Like they're talking about how, you know, doctors are going to be able to leverage that to do their notes and do all of these different things and um, how that's going to become more in the industry where I think I think we have to start to also think about like, okay, there's a cost associated with that. And if business partners are out there listening to us, like how do you deliver that at a meaningful rate that's offsetting not just a one-to-one for a person? Like it has to be cheaper than a person, but at the same time, we still will always need people and and not get get rid of that portion. But I do think the labor shortage is why we're seeing delays in care Um, from a clinical perspective. I think we're seeing it in delay in higher AR days coming out of the pandemic because we had so many people either leave the industry or um, not return because their organization went back into the office and they were able to go find a remote job in a different city or even maybe even different state. Um, so I think, you know, depending on where you're at, you are starting to see this. We're even seeing it at a revenue cycle leadership perspective. If you look at, at I, I was out there doing my field work to say, like, hey, who could we potentially be placing in, in an interim and reaching out to potential clients or clients that we're already working with and they just haven't knocked on our door for some placement. But we're seeing it in executive leadership roles of hybrid or 100% remote for executive leaders and revenue cycle and even IT of where they to be able to get the best of the best across the nation now and be competitive, they're having to have these like hybrid components or people aren't wanting to relocate. I mean, I know I got knocked on the door for a job in California several months ago and it was like I sure I would consider talking to you but if you're asking me to relocate the conversation's dead like I'm not gonna go make what I'm making now with more more expectation hours and not be able to afford a, a cost of living and so so those are I think some of the questions and things that people are having to tackle but it is increasing our cost I mean in, in regards especially like in the clinical space n- clinical staffing agencies, are making a ton of money and i always took it from a revenue cycle perspective um even in my when i was covering for one of our a client a few months ago i told my team like okay if we're going to onboard somebody at $20 an hour we can't pay the staffing agent like the staffing agency can't be paying them $20 an hour when we're bringing them in or else they're never going to leave that agency other than for the benefit portion right so There's this part of like, you can't be paying an agency more than what you're paying your own team for a long duration of time. You have to, it has to be truly short-lived and you have to be turning. And whether it's that person that you just invested all that onboarding and all of that, that's what you want to see as the conversion. So there has to be some strategy and that negotiation to reduce some of that overhead cost of what those agencies are. They have to make money too. They found the person for you and all of that. But at the same time, long-term plan you can't fill everybody with an agency person um in that regard so yeah i mean just like
1: two real quick thoughts on that one yeah i'm not gonna go move because i have to go take a huge like jump in my mortgage like my lo- my cost right. of living would drastically increase if i tried to relocate right now um just with like just thinking housing just everything else aside um and i don't think a starting bonus or relocation fees are going to really help cover that um, I like working from home. It's nice. Um, the second thing. Yeah. I mean, it, you, all these things that we keep talking about like AI or like bringing folks on to talk about initiatives that you're doing, you can't do that if you don't have staff um, and staff that have been there a while and are able to both do their day-to-day stuff and then kind of dream big picture of, like, how can we uh, improve things? Um, and if all of our people, <laughs> if you're like wanting to get a consultant, bring in a consultant to go do that. And all of them are being put in interim roles doing Uh, like the permanent type stuff there's just not there's not people to do those big picture like improvement uh projects or um benefit projects so yeah no it's uh i could see that being a huge challenge
0: and i think that we have to step back as a team too and say hey even like as a consultant right like we want to hear the grassroots expert experts. We want to know what that is. We want to do that. And if you have a high turnover rate or you're having to fill with a huge amount of agency, you don't have that necessarily. So you're hearing from a leader to a leader versus a team member with their leader explaining it. Like, here's my vision. Now here's also my, here's what my team's currently experiencing as a challenge. Um, And the challenges aren't always... they're typically the same across all of, all of our clients. I mean, I think we, uh, they're just a different flavor, a little bit, you know, like it's, it's all ice cream, but it depends what, what flavor you want of that ice cream and what that current process is. But I do think the short, you know, while it's not been in the news recently, I think we're going to start to see it again, especially with um, more and more health systems starting to, consolidate and collaborate like we're seeing i was reading an article recently of um intent for two major health systems here in the pacific northwest to come become one what does that mean for all of their teams like it's they're going to go from set a seven hospital system and a three hospital system to a 10 hospital system as one if they if it goes through what does that mean for two revenue cycle teams or you know, that overhead, now that's putting more people in the market, which is great to fill. So you're not using agency staff, but that's relocation. What does that mean? Potentially, are you going to be able to pay them? Or, you know, what are those needs? And are you really get like outside of this bigger picture? You both are going to still have the same struggles and things now. Now you're just kind of bringing it more into light and in that regard. So it'll be interesting to see as we start to see some of those health systems consolidate where they're thinking they're going to get a reduction in cost and a reduction in spend, but at the same time, how much is going to inflate the market as well in, in some of those other types of roles, not nurses, not physicians, because those people will be protected, you know, pretty protected on the clinical side. But I think on the administrative side, what what is that administrative overhead and do we see more people entering into the market? I don't know. It'll be it'll it'll be interesting to watch like some of those regional areas as we're starting to hear people kind of consolidating together. I hadn't thought of that, I hadn't heard of that. Right. We are almost at time. Final thoughts. I just hope you have a great weekend. Uh
1: <laughs> I am uh, eagerly waiting for cooler weather. My dog complains because he won't go outside if it's too hot. So um, and I hope that uh you have fun with your weekend projects of uh uh helping your you said helping your mother out with some yeah home. we're installing
0: a clo- a closet organizing system My- like <laughs> <laughs> she remodeled a front bedroom and we ripped everything down to the studs so um it's all been wow. drywalled painted and ready to go, but now it's put on closet doors and and reinstall a closet, so we'll see. <laughs> I'm not a handyman by any means. There's a reason I'm a revenue cycle versus something else.
1: <laughs> same, same. Yeah, my, my dad's probably
0: ashamed of me, but yeah, I uh, I don't have that
1: skill or that that knowledge. But uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you have topics that you think that we should talk about, let us know. If you're like contract management uh, affectionate, like that's your passion, like let us know and we can bring you on and we can talk about that.
0: But yeah, <laughs> We're really excited. We're uh, almost near the end of season two, too. So we are looking for ideas to start our planning for season three, and we would love to have any of you listeners uh, join us. So please feel free to reach out to us. Um, You'll hear in the post credits uh, how to get in contact with us. Well, I think that's it for us today, Daniel. So uh, have a wonderful weekend. And for our listeners, bye-bye.
1: If you like today's
0: episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG, Wilshire Group at TWG Health, on Facebook at the Wilshire Group, or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best
1: way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye.
0: The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.